Amen. Super glad you guys are here. So welcome again to Revive. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's just good to be here. I have good news and bad news. I'll start with the bad news first. Um, I learned that Carmen died. Uh, now, a lot of you guys probably don't even know who I'm talking about, but I grew up kind of on the David Meese, uh, Michael W. Smith, and Carmen was a guy who uh, did the champion. I don't know if anybody remembers this stuff, but I, I used to rock out to the champion when I was younger, and I heard that he passed away, but he, uh, he had a huge impact on my life that he proved to me that Christian music didn't have to suck. Um, it could actually be kind of cool, and I was like, all right, that's good. We like that, and then, um, then we had people come out, and then it proved the other way. So anyway... Uh, but uh, also, this past week, I removed, and I didn't do it myself, but uh, the doctor removed all the staples, so I was able to shower uh, this past week. And you may not be rejoicing, but I know in my house, they are <laughs> rejoicing for that. So uh, it was a good, good week. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapters 19 and 20, actually, 19 and 20. Um, if you know me at all, you, you know one of the things that I absolutely love and get into is movies. Um, I absolutely love just zoning out for a couple hours and watching a, a flick. And I remember in the 80s and 90s, I was able to do it a lot more um, than I would say probably the last 15 years. You get married, you have children, and now the movies that I watch are quite different than the movies that I used to watch. But five of probably five in my top 15. And these are all going to kind of connect in some way. And you're going to be like, how in the world do these connect? But there's a similarity in them. Um, the first one is the Sandlot. So the Sandlot is up there for me. Stand By Me uh, is up there for me. The Princess Bride. They all start with the. I don't know why. Um, the, the Princess Bride. Um, the Christmas Story. And then the last one is Goodfellas. <clears throat> I am a huge Goodfellas fan. Um, kids never watch it, but a uh, huge Martin Scorsese fan. Anybody know what the correlation is between all of those films, all five of them? It's not Joe Pesci, <laughs> unless he made a cameo in The Sandlot that I'm not aware of. Um, it's, they're all in narration. It's always somebody telling the story in the movie. And so, you know, you start watching The Princess Bride and um, Peter Falk, is it Peter Falk? Comes out and, you know, he's reading to his grandson and he gets to do that. And Stand By Me, the entire thing is almost narrated. There is someone actually telling the story as the movie plays out. And I just love that. It's also why we love TV shows like The Wonder Years. I think The Wonder Years is one of the best shows, but also just underrated. A lot of people just don't uh, appreciate the way that they should. Uh, my wife, it's her favorite TV show ever, and so I bought her uh, the series a while back. But when I was a kid, I think one of my favorite things was just listening to people tell stories. And um, <clears throat> obviously, the older you are, you remember when you go back in your, your, your time and as a kid, there was a lot more storytelling back then. And even before I was alive, there was way more storytelling. Before TV, before radio, before all those things, that is how people, they sat around the living room and they would tell stories. 
Uh, I actually have a friend that has a degree in storytelling, um, Tommy Oaks. Tommy Oaks can tell stories like none other. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are just really phenomenal storytellers. So when I actually started, uh, when my wife and I started having kids, I said, man, I just I can't wait to be able to tell them stories. And our girls love it when we tell stories. And so there's one that I made up uh, called Princess, you're not going to say it, are you? <laughs> princess poops a lot. They, they love the princess poops a lot story that I share, um, but they're afraid to say poops a lot in church. Good job. Um, so there's different stories that I will tell them as they go to bed, and a lot of times we'll tell Bible stories, and they love Esther. I think the reason they love me to tell Esther before bed is because it's going to take me at least a half hour to tell the story of Esther, and they can stay up later. Love storytelling. Jesus was a master storyteller. And throughout his time, it's basically about a third of what he says in what he is saying in the New Testament, the Gospels, is done through parables. And in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a story known as that parable that, uh, of a very generous boss. Anybody ever had a very generous boss? Okay, maybe, maybe not. Maybe your boss is not so generous. Parables are earthly stories that actually have a heavenly or a divine meaning. And so it actually means uh, to go alongside of. Um, and so he would try to make a point or a principle, and then he would tell a story that would basically just drive home the point that he was making. And so he would do this a lot of times. So he'd give a lesson and then tell a story that would directly related to the principle. But for us to understand the, the principle of the parable that he's going to tell in Matthew chapter 20, we actually have to go back to Matthew chapter 19. See, when the Gospels were written, they weren't broken down into verses and chapters. That would be much later when somebody said, you know what, when we ask people to turn to this, it takes a long time. So maybe we should just get verses and chapters. And so they did and I'm glad that they did, because now we can just say, hey, you can just turn to this book and this chapter and this scripture, and we can get there a lot quicker. But the only problem is, is that uh, they didn't always, in my opinion, when they separated things and put them in scriptures and, and chapters, sometimes I don't think they did a very good job of breaking it down. And I think that's where we are here, because... Uh, chapter 19 of Matthew uh, could have just continued into the next parable. And so it's unfortunate that they did not do it that way. In Matthew 19, Jesus tells of a man who came to him and said, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's a good question, right? If you had a chance to have a conversation with Jesus, you might ask something similar, you know, am I doing the right things? Am I doing what I need to do? to have eternal life. If you go to John chapter 3, it's what we, that whole scenario is, is being asking Jesus, okay, what must we do? What, 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 what do I need to do to have eternal life? And that's what this rich man is asking Jesus. It seems like a good question. And Jesus tells him what he needs to do is to obey the commandments. And the guy was like, well, which ones? And so Jesus says, well, I'll give you six. And he does. He breaks it down into six commandments that he needs to obey. 
Um, and so if you want to have eternal life, this is what you need to do. And then Jesus tells him, you know, you obey these six commandments. And the guy, the guy does, he basically says, I've done that. I think it's interesting that he breaks one of the commandments when he tells Jesus, I've done all those because obviously we've broken a lot of the commandments. But Jesus tells him, if you do this, you will have gained treasure in heaven. Come and follow me if you do this. If you go and you sell everything you have and take that money and give it to the poor, then come and follow me and you'll get treasures in heaven. And it says the man went away sad. And Jesus then began to teach his disciples about what, it, what you need to do. And then Peter just kind of chimes in and says, well, who in the world can go to heaven? Like, who, what are we going to get? You know, we've quit everything to follow after you. And Jesus basically tells him that on your part, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Jesus then says this in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 30, and this is the principle. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be greatest then. So that is the principle and then what Jesus does is he tells the story to support it, to give an earthly story to drive home a heavenly truth. And this is what he says in Matthew 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like... Now, whenever Jesus would say, for the kingdom of heaven is like, what he is really saying is basically, this is what God is like. This is what your heavenly Father is like. And he says... The kingdom of God, your heavenly father, is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for the, his vineyard, and he agreed to pay, they settled on a, an amount, he agreed to pay the normal daily wage, and he sent them out to work. Now, I didn't really understand a lot of this until I had moved to Southern California, and when I lived in Southern California, I would go to, like, uh, Sherwin-Williams and Home Depot. And the first time this happened to me, it kind, of, it kind of threw me a little bit. But there will be people who will be outside of the store who will be looking for work, especially the paint stores. And so if you're doing a project at home and you're painting your house, uh, you can go and you can hire one of those guys, um, usually pay them under the table, but you're going to hire them for a day's wage or whatever. In Jesus' day, this happens all the time, where in the marketplace, men would be around and work, you know, especially during the harvest season, you could go and you could hire day labor. And so that's what's going on here in this story. He goes out at 6 a.m., now, here's what I love. In the original text, it says in the first hour, the way that the workday is broken out is it's a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. workday. This is why I love the NLT, because the NLT just says this would be 6 a.m. And then the third hour, 9 a.m., the sixth hour would be noon, the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock, and the twelfth hour, obviously, 6 p.m. And so, verse 3, and it says at 9 o'clock in the morning... 
he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. And so he hired them, telling them that he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. And so they went to work in the vineyard, and at noon, and again at 3 o'clock, he did the exact same thing. Do you notice the difference between the guys that he hired at 6 and those that he hired at 9, noon, and 3? The guys that he hired at 6, they actually had a conversation and agreed on a price. They agreed on what the wage would be. And so they would negotiate, agree on the price, and then the rest of the guys, it says that he would just pay them what is right, what is going to be good at the end of the day. Verse 6, it says that at 5 o'clock that afternoon, so if it's 6 to 6, and he goes back at 5 o'clock, and he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around, and he asked them, why haven't you been working today? I kind of feel like some bosses probably even ask that of people today. They go into their, their workplace and they see people working or not working and they're like, why haven't you been working today? But these guys are in the marketplace and he's asking, why haven't you been working? And they replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. So these guys, these folks, are hired at 5 p.m., and so if the day ends at 6, that means only one hour. But they're grateful to have that hour of work, and so they work for the hour. Then it says that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. And so he basically sets them up, and all the guys that have worked for the day, they come over and he, he starts with the guys that worked um, last, the guys that came in at 5 o'clock. See, Mosaic Law, it required you to pay your day laborers at the end of each workday because they were the day laborers, and you would most likely, uh, that was going to be the last time that some of them might even work for you. And so you would just pay them at the end of the day, uh, which is 6 p.m. And the landowner asked his foreman to call all the workers uh, who he had hired during the day. So you have this group, <clears throat> those that he hired at 6 a.m., those he hired at 9 a.m., those he hired at noon, and those he hired at 3, and even those that only worked for one hour, and he lines them up. And in verse 9, it says this, when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. So the people that came in and worked only one hour this guy's like, you know what? I'm so glad you worked for an hour. I'm going to give you a full day's wage. And so he did. In today's day and age, it would probably be like minimum wage um, or what you would pay people to work in fields. And so that's what happens. So that's what he does. Now, do you... Imagine what is going through the minds of the guys that have been working all day. So if you were hired at 6 a.m. and he just hired the guys that worked one hour, a full day's wage, do you see what they're thinking? I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be like, ooh, he is generous. 
I wonder what I am going to receive. And you start doing some math up in your head, and it's going to be maybe, maybe he's, it's going to be like 12 days of pay that I'm going to get for one day of pay. This is so good. And then you start to do this. And I do this all the time. I start doing the spending in my head. Maybe I ever do that. You start buying, you start going on Amazon, you start dreaming about the things that you're going to do with the money that you're about to receive. A few years ago, Sarah and I bought a lot of tickets, and we don't ever do that, but Powerball was up to like $10 billion, and we're like, okay, why not? And we went home, and we, we did, this, we did the, the Christian lotto thing where you pray about it, and then you start making a list of how you're going to bless all these people and all these church. We actually listed church planters. We're like, we'll give every single church planter $100,000, and it's going to blow them away. And we, all these missionaries... You don't have to raise your support for five years because we're just going to take care of you. And we did all those things, and we had fun, and then we did, you know, and then the first number comes up, and I'm like, oh, way off. We weren't even close. So that's what a lot of people do. They start spending the money in their head. So maybe you guys are like, man, maybe we could get some new clothes. Maybe, you know, Jeff, we could get him a case of Mountain Dew. That's kind of fun to do that. And so when it came to the guys who had worked all day, all 12 hours, they were just busting with anticipation of what they would be paid. Here's how it says it in verse 10. It says, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. Now, a lot of us... (laughs) we'd get pretty upset. It doesn't seem what? doesn't seem fair. That's not fair. That's just a load of garbage. How in the world could you pay the guy that only worked one hour this much, and we worked all day. We slaved all day. Our muscles hurt. It is not fair that you pay us the same. The prophet Ezekiel had to warn the children of Israel during the Babylonian captivity about their sins. And some of those sins were why they were under captivity in the first place. One of those sins was that of accusing God of being unfair and unjust. In verse 11, it says this, when they received their pay, they protested. They're upset, they're angry, they're ticked. They protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour And yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. So now they've just basically said, this is total bogus. We worked all day. We're exhausted. We're in the the heat of the sun. And you paid us that much. That is not a good way to treat us. You gave us the same amount that you gave to the guys who just started working an hour ago and hardly broke a sweat. Notice the answer. He answered one of them, and I love this, friend. It says friend. Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to the work to work all day for the usual wage? He's like, wait a minute. You have a short memory. At the beginning of the day, we sat down and you agreed that this is what I would pay you if you worked starting right now to the end of the day. We agreed on that, and I've paid that to you. Do you remember that? 
And then in verse 14, he says, take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? And then he says, and basically in the King James, it says, is your eye evil because I am good? This is what we would call a Hebrew idiom. See, most of the Bible was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and they would say phrases or say things that we rely on scholars and interpreters and uh, basic uh, commentary to break it out for us. And so we hope that we understand exactly what they're saying so we don't just have to assume it. For example, if someone who didn't understand our language... English language, would hear somebody say, oh yeah, well, you know, Fred, he's not here. Uh, he must have kicked the bucket. All right? I'm so sorry. <laughs> he kicked the bucket. What would they assume? If they didn't understand our language and they heard us say that Fred kicked the bucket, a lot of, most everywhere else around the world, they're probably just picturing Fred out in the back kicking a bucket, right? But we know that it means he's kicked the bucket, he's dead. So in different areas, and so I had some fun, in Swedish, uh, when you die, it is to fall off the stick or take the sign down. That's what they would say, right? And we would be like, what? What sign? In Ukrainian, it's to cut the oak. In Bulgarian, it's to kick the bell. In French, to eat the dandelions from by the root. I think that makes sense. <laughs> Romanian, uh, to turn the corner or his clock has rang. In Norwegian, to park the slippers. To park the, yeah, park the slippers. So, and so in scriptures, we rely on the scholars over time to translate the scriptures so that we understand exactly what they're saying, the writings of the day. And so when we read a phrase, uh, like in phrases like in verse 15, and it says, is your eye evil? I immediately think of somebody giving you the, what? The evil eye. Right? Oh, he gave me the evil eye. But it actually just means that you are selfish to the core. You are selfish to the core. And God's basically saying, you are angry because you're jealous. You're envious because I have been generous to someone else. So when someone else gets blessed, you ever get angry? Because you know that they got blessed and yet you did something and you didn't get what they got. And this is amazing implications for our lives because we get into this place where we don't see what God has actually blessed us with because we're so focused on what other people have gotten and received. And then we play the compare game. And we do this all the time. We play the compare game. And you become depressed, unsatisfied, unfulfilled when you start comparing your life with other people. And we never do it with those people that have less. We always compare it with those that have more. 
All right, so when you're looking at your house, you rarely compare it with somebody that has a much smaller house on a much worse street than you have. We always compare it with somebody who has a bigger house, a nicer house on a nicer street with a nicer yard. We're like, oh, that would be nice. That would be delightful. But before you noticed their house, you probably thought that you had a very nice house. We become selfish. We become greedy to the core. But your eye is evil. You are filled with selfishness is what he is telling them. In the NIV, it's described as, are you envious because I am generous? In the English Standard Version, it says, or do you begrudge my generosity? The message says, are you going to get stingy because I am generous? And of course, the NLT, which I read, should you be jealous because I am kind to others? See, the problem here isn't injustice, or in this case, a perceived injustice, but rather the problem here is jealousy on the part of the labor workers. They were jealous because they perceived things wrong. And instead of rejoicing at the good fortune of the people that worked one hour, they chose to be upset. They were envied them and they were bitter. And so what do we take from this? There's a lot. But I would say first, concentrate on what you have instead of wanting what everyone else has. In other words, look at the blessings that you have in your life instead of concentrating on the blessings in someone else's life and wanting that too. In life, we tend to always do this. We look at what other people have and we want those things instead of being grateful uh, for what we have in our own lives and When we do this, we allow our blessings to actually become a curse, and I'll talk about that in a second. The illustration that I have always used this on this story, and Andrew and I had some fun with this a few years ago, but if you have your children, if you have more than one, see what happens when you start scooping out ice cream and putting it in their bowl. So put a bowl in front of your kids and start start with one scoop. And they're all happy, right? Until, do this, give maybe one of the other kids like three scoops and see what happens. In fact, Andrew did a video a while back, and it was so funny, even though it made fun of me. Um, But he had three or four kids sitting around the table, and he gave them all some ice cream. And then he went in and put like a tub of ice cream in front of himself and put whipped cream and all this other stuff on top of it. And their faces were just like, oh, <laughs> it was so hilarious. They were all happy with their ice cream until they saw Andrew. Because they look in their bowl and they're like, well, this was good just a minute ago. But then when you did all that, I'm like, man, why? Because we compare that. Now, if you put all the kids in a separate room, where they didn't see what anybody else got, and you gave them one or two scoops of ice cream. They're all happy because they're not comparing. They don't see what other people got. And we become adults, and what do we do? We do something very similar, don't we? We look at what other people have. 
And I think it would be so good if we were able to just rejoice when other people are blessed. In fact, in Romans 12, it tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Be happy for them. And I would say then this, don't let your blessings become your curse. I would say one scoop of ice cream is a blessing, right? Until you see somebody else that has two, and what you do is you allow the blessing of what you have become a curse. When you find yourself in a place where you're not grateful and you're not focusing on your own blessings and you start to allow your blessings to actually become a curse because you're always comparing it to what someone else has. In Leviticus 25, 23, it says, the land must never be sold on a permanent basis for the land belongs to me. This is God saying this. This land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and a tenant farmers working for me. God is like, hey, this land that you are on, guess what? It's mine. It's mine. I own everything. You know that everything that you have belongs to the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it takes it a little bit deeper. Starting in verse 10, here's what it says. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land that he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods that you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns that you did not dig, and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. He is reminding them, I am giving all of this stuff to you. I am going to bless you with it, and I'm going to pour it out, all of this, unto you. But remember that it's actually all mine. It's all mine. In Deuteronomy 19.14, it says, When you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you as your special possessions, you must never steal anyone's land by moving the boundary markers that your ancestors set up to mark their property. See, the way they would do this is they would be property lines for us. That's how we would basically say it. But back then, they would have stone markers. And it was known for some people who would look at what their neighbor had and want it, and they would start going out each day and maybe moving it a couple inches, moving the, the boundary rocks just a couple inches. And then maybe a, a week would go by, and then guess what? Go back out at night and move it just a couple more inches. Well, if you do this continuing on very slowly, you're stealing something that is not yours. It is not your property. And we will do this in our heads. Sometimes when we look at our neighbor's yard and we think, man, that is very good. It would be nice to be able to have that. And we start to covet. And we go to a place that we shouldn't go. And so I just want to encourage all of us, and I love this passage because I need this, is just be careful. Be careful. I remember hearing... And you guys have heard this, I'm sure. You always think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And, of course, the grass is greener 
on your side of the fence when you tend to it, when you water it, when you take care of it, when you appreciate it. See, when we acknowledge God's ownership over everything, I think it makes it so much easier to appreciate what we have. See the blessings that we have in our lives. My car is great because it gets me from A to B, and I'm not going to compare it to any of your all's cars that may look a little bit nicer. I may say nice car, but I'm just going to appreciate what I have. And the last thing I would just point out, and this is amazing, is that we follow after a very generous God. I love the fact that God wants to give us so much, especially salvation, which we do not deserve. So when he was addressing it in Leviticus, they were, he was addressing their selfishness, saying that God is an unfair God. Be careful when you ask God to get you what you deserve or what is fair. Run quick, because lightning might strike. But God gives us salvation, not for what you do, but for being a follower of him. So when you declare him, and Andrew did such a great job of talking about this last week, but just making God, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, making him the number one thing in your life, you receive salvation when you follow after and pursue after a relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's the really cool thing. The Bible is very clear that we are rewarded for our good works. So you're created to do good deeds while you're here on earth. And when you get salvation, because of what Christ did for you on the cross, it's kind of like Christmas where we will stand before God and we will explain how we lived our life and then we will receive what we are due. Kind of cool. So it's going to be a neat thing where we receive gifts for how we've lived our life and the things that we have done. So here's the takeaway and then we'll close. Understand that everything that you have comes from God and given to you by God. Rejoice at the good fortune of those around you. That will make life so much better. Less stress if you just are rejoicing for what other people have and not being concentrating on what you don't have. And then look for ways to use all of your blessings for the kingdom of God. So, that's it. I hope that this is a parable that kind of knocked you in the teeth a little bit because it, it did for me and has for me. It's one of those that I like to read every year because I need it. But uh, let's concentrate on the blessings that we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for loving us the way that you do. You've given us so much. And I know that my mind quickly goes to the things that I don't have or I look maybe down the street in somebody else's driveway, somebody else's home, even looking at other churches. It can lead to an incredibly bad place. Help us to have incredibly generous hearts. 
hearts that are grateful for what we have, what you've given to us, and not play the compare game, to focus on what we have in our bowl. We love you. We're grateful for you. And this we ask in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.